Amen. Thank you, worship team. Would you guys join me this morning in your Bibles? Uh, Matthew chapter 13, I think this is our fifth uh, week in Matthew 13, and we're nearing two years in this book, seems like. We're getting pretty close to that. At the end of this month, at the start of next month, we'll be starting our third year in the book of Matthew. And um, don't be discouraged. If you were here a year ago, you'll know that we were like only through chapter 5. We were in the middle of that. So we've made tremendous headway in 2020, right? And I do anticipate, if the Lord wills, that next year may move at an even quicker rate than we did this year. So, uh, But we, I do not anticipate finishing this book in 2021. Uh, so I, I don't know about you guys. I get something out of this every week. This week, we only have three verses. So here's the scene. The chapter begins. Jesus moves from a house where he's teaching disciples, moves down to the Sea of Galilee. Many, a large crowd, probably in the thousands, are following him. He moves out into a boat. He teaches in parables only. Without going into this, there is some debate about whether what we're going to look at today was given to the crowds because we know that Jesus taught them in parables or was this given back at the house again to the smaller group of just disciples so I'm not going to go into that uh, the message will have plenty uh, to, in and of itself without us focusing on that debate but um, in a moment we're going to read verses 44 to 46 and I got to go ahead and confess I thought when I saw this passage coming I kind of thought, okay, I'll probably do those two parables. So we've already looked at four. We've seen a parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds among the wheat. And then last week we saw the parables of the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, and it is like leaven. And so this week we're looking at the two. And then like last week, let me go ahead and say, these are so overlapping in their message. I think it's just two ways of saying, in essence, the same message uh, I'm not my points this morning. You say, oh, he's got two points instead of three. It is two. It is not going to be deal with verse 44 by itself, and then we're going to deal with 45, 46, the second parable. No, we're going to look at all of it, make a few comments. That's kind of introductory, background-oriented. And then we will make, guys, i just got to confess, you've got two points on your outline, but it is really one point said twice with a little different emphasis the more I went through this the more I realized Jeff did you even need to make points this week I, the, I'm, I know in a few minutes as I'm covering the first main thought I'm already going to be dipping into the second one but that's okay as long as we get the main idea last thing before reading the text I thought I had a layup this week right so we struggle each week haven't taught and preached through this haven't studied it there's a difference in reading and studying and then each week, it's just like, wow, what does that mean? It's so big. It's so heavy. I saw this coming. I thought, oh, okay, this will, this will be a good, easy week. I won't be here late on Thursday. Yeah, well, I left about 2.15 Thursday, Friday morning, right? Uh, this one was whipping me for just some tweaky little things. And I don't even know if you'll see it. Uh, but I was like, ah, I just couldn't get it. And so I pray that the Lord will teach you and impress your heart this morning in spite of my inability to fully understand or to fully explain. And there's a lot we'll have to skip for time's sake. Verse 44, here we go. So here's now the fifth and sixth out of at least seven, possibly eight parables in chapter 13. Here comes the fifth and sixth. Here we go. The kingdom of heaven 
It's Jesus talking. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. You should already be picturing this. Don't just look at ink on a page or a projection on a screen. Let your mind start hearing the words of Christ. You should start picturing this. Your field may look different than someone else's, but you should be picturing. Jesus is saying, you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. In other words, what's in this field would change people's lives, but they don't know that it's there. The kingdom of heaven is like that. It's like treasure hidden in a field which a man, some random man, found. The impression we get is he found by accident, which a man found. And when he found it, notice what he does. Covered it up. He found it. He knows he's looking at a treasure, an immense treasure. Covers it up. Then, in his joy, not in his grief, Oh, guess I better buy this field. <laughs> In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. You think, well, Jeff, what do you think that means? I think what that means, I'm not really good on the Greek. I think in the Greek what that means is he went and sold everything he had. That's what I think. Like everything he had. He finds his treasure, covers it back up. He's really joyful. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom of heaven's like. We don't need to know Greek to understand the point of that. All of you, if you had five minutes to just sit and read that and think, I think I know the main point of this text. Verse 45 and 46 emphasizes the same main point, slightly different. Again, Jesus says, here's another parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant. So there's someone that's a business person. A merchant in search of fine pearls. Already you're noticing probably the main difference between the two other than a buried treasure and the pearl we're getting ready to talk about. Other than that difference, you see that the main message is the same in each of them. But already we've noticed one main thing between this merchant and that man. He is in search of fine pearls. He's looking for fine pearls. He's a merchant. He's ready to buy them. Who, so he's been doing this on finding one pearl of great value. He's been looking for fine pearls, but when he finds this one pearl of great value, notice what he does, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The impression is he has these other fine pearls he's been collecting. He literally sells them and everything else that he has. I have to have this one pearl. And the Lord says, that, ladies and gentlemen, is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like this buried treasure. It's like this pearl of great price. And so today we'll have two points, but really the points are the same, slightly emphasizing a different part of the point. Would you remember with me, again, by way of introduction and brief background, remember what a parable is. Why would this connect with that audience more than it will with you right now? You say, Jeff, I, I kind of get the point. Sounds a little far-fetched, a little outlandish, probably pretty unlikely. Sounds like somebody won a lottery, right? And that's how our mind would think. Remember what a parable does. It's when someone is teaching, in this case Christ, he has this concept that is not known. This is unknown. He wants you to know this. And so he's going to bring something that is known. 
Here's why this would connect more with that audience than it does at first to us. Here's why. I'm not going to say they'd had no banking system at that time, but their banking system at this time was not like ours. So you got to put yourself into that world. What if you lived in this world and you just didn't have banks, but you got bank, right? You've got a wealth. It's in your family, however it happened. You have treasure, I mean, an enormous amount of treasure that is worth a lot. Now, picture, you say, so what would you do if there are no banks? Anderson County, we only have like, I don't know how many thousands of people, but we have dozens of banks. There's enough wealth in Anderson County, we'd need dozens of banks. They didn't have those, but they had wealth all over Israel. So what are these people to do with it? What are your choices? What are you going to do with it? You say, well, I, maybe you could hide it in the house. Remember, they're not going to have a door system and a locking system like we have. They're not going to have a security system that goes down over here, and then those people call the police automatically, and there's probably not a police force that's going to come. The Romans are in rule. Are you going to leave it there? Remember that these folks three times a year leave their houses and go down to Jerusalem for a week at a time, if not more, counting going and coming. It wouldn't take even a foolish thief to realize, man, the town clears out this time of the year, and they just go around, excuse me for a moment, and start clearing out all the wealth that is collected in these houses. One more thing. Israel is probably the most war-torn area of the world. This patch of land has probably had more wars in its history than anywhere else in the history of the world. And so they know that at any time an, an enemy army could come and just start plundering their goods. So if that is you and you have a treasure, what would you do with it? You say, I'd probably bury it. And so the picture here, you could go a lot of direction. I'm going to just, to project in your mind, picture a day laborer. Maybe you want to picture a slave who's working for his master, and the slave doesn't have a lot, but he's paying off a bill, and he gets a little bit of money built up, and he does what this says. But let's say this is a day laborer who's going and work for a man who owns an area, and as he's digging or moving rocks or clearing or plowing, all of a sudden he discovers something, and he unearths it. No one else is around, and he sees an enormous treasure, and you're reading the text as I do, and he covers it back up. Now, right off, right off the bat, I struggled with this. I'll just tell you, kind of in my little moral compass, I started thinking, now, Lord, what are you trying to tell us in this parable? Is this even right? I mean, he goes, sees the treasure, buries it back, and then starts negotiating for the price of the field. First of all, I'd say he probably didn't negotiate. He just said, how much for the field? And, and then he pays it, and he goes and sells all that he has. But if any one of us, like I did for just a few minutes, starts thinking, well, man, that seems a little shrewd, maybe a little sharp business practice, seems a little dishonest. He wasn't fully disclosing why he wanted to buy. He should have told that person, notice what D.A. Carson writes. You say, Jeff, is this even likely to happen? Could anyone possibly actually discover a treasure? It was enough, it was likely enough, they actually had laws in case you found it. Carson writes the following. He says, under rabbinic law, if a workman came on a treasure in a field, here's the key, and lifted it out, he comes on a treasure, if he lifts it out, it would belong to his master, the field's owner. 
You lift it out of the field, he owns the field. You just stole from him. If you keep it, it goes to him. But, Carson says, but here the man is careful not to lift the treasure out till he has bought the field. So, in other words, now he's the owner of the field, and anything in the field is his. And, yes, I admit he did not tell the master of the field and the previous owner what was in the field. Before we judge, two quick points. Number one, what would you have done? Be honest. You're like, I think I ought to, wow, this is great. Hey, boss, look what you got over here. What's that? An enormous amount of treasure. And I just brought it out. Just wanted you to know, oh, okay, well, get it up and bring it on. Yes, sir, boss, get right on. You would not do that. I promise you would not do that. I wouldn't do that. Secondly, if you're taking notes, write this down. We need to remember that the focus of this parable is not on whether or not the man's actions are proper. We're not here to evaluate, man, was he honest or dishonest? It's not about the man's actions being proper. The key point of the parable, as is obvious, is it's about the value of the treasure. It's the value of the treasure. That's the focus. It's not, again, not about did he do the right thing or the wrong thing. It's look what he did because of the value of the treasure. Briefly comments. Look down at verse 45 and 46. Let's notice a couple things there. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who in finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So here we're already noticing again a difference in my mind. This is where my mind went. I had a conversation with a gentleman here in our church Wednesday night. His mind immediately upon hearing it went to these fine pearls represent the same thing that was in my mind and is in commentary books. You say, what does that stand for? There are some folks who go through life and they're feeling empty, and maybe they try this. This is a person. I think these fine pearls represent, and this merchant represents people who are going through life, and, and maybe they think fame is the answer, and that'll give me meaning, and that'll give me purpose, and that'll give me satisfaction, but it doesn't work. Power will do it. No, it doesn't work. And then wealth, that'll do it. And having possessions, and maybe even not just fame. I just want to be popular. I want people to And they just keep trying all the things that everybody thinks is going to meet the need, but as they're going through life, nothing satisfies Nothing seems to answer this haunting question. And by the way, most people don't go through life thinking, what's the great meaning? What's the great purpose? Some people do. And so this person's going through life wondering what is the meaning, what is the purpose, what satisfies, and they'll try that religion, and they'll look into that religion, and I think I've got a pearl over here, and I have a pearl over here, and that one, and that one, and this person's philosophy. And, and again, these people say if you just get more money, you'll eventually be happy with it. And they try all those things, but ultimately, here's what happens. God reveals his kingdom to them, and then they realize none of those things are equal to this. And this person at that moment, they realize three things about the kingdom of God. It is true. It is different. Nothing else like Christianity on the whole planet. This is different. This is true. And this really satisfies. So much so, I am willing to trade everything else in for the satisfaction of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father in heaven. This is where it's at. I'm all in on this. And so just before looking at our first point this morning, last thought. Some people just live life and like I did. I remember when I got saved, I was totally unaware, shocked, when God invaded my world, a little nine-year-old, I was so introverted 
The only, I know I would not have asked to go to a Bible camp. I would not have known about a Bible camp. I would not have wanted to go to a Bible camp. Why would I want to do that? It's summer. I want to stay home. But my uncle calls my dad and wants to know if me and my brother can go to a Bible camp. I go there not knowing what in the world to expect, no doubt very nervous. I had no idea that on that Monday night, the second Monday of, of, of June 1979, I did not know what would start happening in my heart on Monday night. I didn't know what would happen on Tuesday night, and I sure didn't know what would culminate on Wednesday night when I received the Lord as my Savior. It just blew me away. The Lord comes into my life and just dominates. He just puts himself. I, I just found it. it was, on my end, as if by accident, on God's end, it was all part of the plan. A lot of people do that. Maybe you're here today and you're watching right now and you're saying, I'm, I'm just minding my own business. I'm just going to go check this church out. Don't really have any great plans for it. I'm just checking it out. But the Lord has a great plan for you. But there are still a few people that are different than that. And they're searching and they're looking and they've tried that and that and that. And they're empty. But when you find Christ, you're like this man here, this merchant. And you recognize you have finally found it. You weren't looking. I mean, you were looking for it. I wasn't. But you were looking, and finally the Lord reveals his kingdom to you, and it is precious. Two thoughts this morning. Number one, you write this down. The kingdom, I'm sorry, the value of God's kingdom is infinite. Obviously, if you read this just once, sat there and thought about it, maybe read it twice, you would realize the point of these parables, both of them, this is overlap, the same thing. The point is, the va- ladies and gentlemen, listen to me, the value of God's kingdom is infinite. Somebody give me a synonym for the word infinite. Eternal. I heard limitless. Endless. Boundless. You, listen, guys, here's the point of the parable. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. The value of God's kingdom is, is you cannot quantify it. You cannot qualify it. You cannot find the limit of it. Now, here's why. Do you guys know why we cannot understand how valuable? This person comes across a treasure. He realizes this is great value, enough that he would go sell everything he has to get this. What I'm saying this morning, the message for us is that God's kingdom is so valuable, it is infinitely valuable. Here's why I use the word infinitely. Even if, now here's why we struggle. We're going to struggle with appreciating the point this morning. I struggle. But guys, if we could go to heaven for 60 seconds, if we could just go to the current heaven, if we could sneak a peek to the new heaven like John did for 60 seconds and just look around, then we would have a greater, excuse me, I can tell sometimes my voice it's getting ready to do a little thing that it does. <clears throat> and it's not done this. So you pray, right? Start praying, Lord. Helping that. Excuse me. All right. So the point being, if we could see heaven, guys, I think immediately we would have a greater appreciation for how valuable. What might cause us to appreciate even more than that? Seeing the Lord Jesus Christ glorified, more than that, what might cause us to appreciate not the infiniteness, but much greater than we currently do if we could see what? No one is thinking this? What could we see, not for 60 seconds, if we could see it, experience it for five seconds? If we could experience, ladies and gentlemen, think with me, if we could experience hell for five seconds, we would begin to get a better picture of the infinite value of the kingdom 
And that's the message. The value of the kingdom of God is infinite. Let me put it this way, guys. I think there are clues in the world. They're around us all the time, and we perceive them. They're in our society. Here's a clue. Um, Let's just say someone here, on your regular schedule, your normal drive, your weekly or your daily drive, in a half-mile period, there are, say, four or five restaurants. But one of those restaurants is only open from Tuesday to Saturday. But without fail, every Tuesday to Saturday, as you drive by, there are like dozens, not like a full parking lot, dozens of people standing outside of this restaurant. That's a clue. What's the clue? What does that tell you about that restaurant? Every night. Every night. They're not open on Sunday, Sunday night, Monday night. But every other night, man, those people are just packed out. They've got good food in there. How do you know? You've eaten there before. Never eaten there, but I know they have good food. It's a clue. Here's another one. Of the thousands of colleges and universities in our country, I want you to picture a college that just straight up tells you we charge three to four times more than all the other colleges. And you're like, why? It's not because they have so few people attending. We need more money to pay for our employees and pay for our maintenance and pay for our buildings, and we're really struggling. We're going to have to charge you more. What if that same college you realize charges three or four times more than everybody else, you find out that they only take, say, 10 12% of the people who apply, and it's only the top of the top. And you would say, that must be one more really good college or university that has great value in having a degree from there. Here's another one. Here's one that, that I go by sometimes. If you're looking for a place to go have a vacation, and you do like I do sometimes, you go look for the good deal on VRBO, Vacation Rental by Owner, Verbo. Guys, if you see, now notice, hundreds, not like three or four or five star, like, oh, look, Five-star rating, and you look, and it says three reviews. No, that's their family, right? Their family stayed there the first few times, and they did this, I am Jane, and it was awesome, and this, that, and that. Okay, that's them. But when you see year after year, five-star, five-star, I mean, if you have to hunt for a four-and-a-half star, and the only reason you find every now and then a four-and-a-half star because it rained while they were there, that's not their fault, then I gather like, man, this place delivers on what it says. This must be one more great place to stay. These are clues. Here's the thought. Please go with me in your mind. At this point in history, Jesus, who's talking to us in this passage, he is the only one on the whole planet at this time who, as we talked about a while ago, he has seen God. He has seen heaven. He knows it fully. And guys, I'm going to propose to you that if we, we need to listen better when Jesus talks. We need to pay better attention because he's constantly comparing this life and the next life. He's giving us clues all through the New Testament. He's the only one. About 12 years later, Paul will see. He'll get a quick glimpse of the third heaven. Some 60 years after this, John's going to get a quick glimpse of heaven. But at this point, Jesus is the only one, and he's comparing. Did you notice what he's saying? What the Lord is saying, and now I realize as I'm saying this, I'm already bleeding over to my supposed second point. Guys, what Christ is saying is his kingdom is so valuable, you've never seen it. It's so valuable that if it literally costs you everything you have then it's worth it. It's worth, if it were to cost you everything you have, what the Lord would say is, jump on it. Don't delay. Don't hesitate. 
Do it with joy. Do everything. Give it all away to have this. It's that. What the Lord is saying is, I've seen here and I've seen there. Do everything it takes here to get there. And that's a message this morning. Is that the complete message? That's not the only message. But he's trying to say, it is so much more valuable than you realize. I'm telling you it is if you will take my word. Guys, I believe the New Testament is just filled with it. When Jesus talks, he's often giving us these comparisons. Let's look at just three quickly. Go back if you would, chapter 6. Got your Bible? We're going to stick to Matthew here today. We're looking only at Matthew today. Go back to chapter number 6. We preached on this a year ago. Here's the scene. Matthew just told people in, I'm sorry, Jesus just told people in the Sermon on the Mount in the previous verses, if, and when I preached it, I remember I broke it down into two groups. He told some people who had extra money. He told them, don't lay up your treasures here on earth. He says, lay up your treasures in heaven. Be investing in the kingdom of God. In other words, don't just be self-serving. You have more than you need. Don't just keep laying up more and more treasures. You're going to regret that if you do. But then notice he moves to a second group of people as it really starts in verse number 25. I think this group of people would say, yeah, they have extra. I don't have extra. If I were to give to that, that's probably someone sitting here today, someone watching right now is like, I can't do what you talked about in the announcements this morning or how you finished last week's message because if I do that, I'm not going to be able to eat or to drink and we're not going to be able to pay this bill and that bill. Notice what the Lord says. It's not on your screen, but I'm going to back up to verse 32, verse 31. Jesus says, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat? The context is literally, if I invest in this kingdom. They have extra, I don't. But don't be anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? If I do that, then I'm not going to have these other needs met. He says, the Gentiles, unsaved people seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Now, verse 33, here's your clue. You say, Jeff, I've heard this all my life. I'm just asking this morning, would you hear this as a clue from the one person at this time who had seen both worlds? Here's what he says. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. Ladies and gentlemen, he's not saying this world's unimportant. He's saying anything in this world is far less important than that world. Seek first the kingdom of God. Do you do that? Do you hear that this morning? That's from the Lord. Like, wait a minute. I need to see that. I need to pay attention. Jesus is giving me a clue. Jeff, seek first the kingdom. Live this life. In this life, but constantly, mostly aware of the next. Am I living this life? Putting into that life. Seek first the kingdom. Flip over to chapter 16. We'll get there, Lord willing, in a few months. A couple months, Lord willing. Look at chapter 16. A very familiar verse. A verse where Jesus just asks a couple of questions. These are more thought-provoking than I will have time to give them this morning. I'm not even going to read the read-up to verse from 24 and 25. Just jump right to verse 26. Look at the. T- this is a clue to us. This is a clue. Jesus asks, "For what will it profit a man?" Here's a hypothetical. Hypothetical. Go with him. Do the hypothetical with him. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and, here's the other side of it, forfeits his soul? He gains the whole world, forfeits his soul. And then he asks another question that in my mind, I'm thinking he's kind of already 
answered by the first question, so this really shouldn't cause us to go anywhere that we haven't already gone in the first one. But he asked it. So you should consider this. What shall a man or a woman, what should you give in return for his soul? What would you take? I know that when he asked the second question, normally our minds here in America, 21st century, we start thinking an amount of money. Quick question. How much would you take for your soul? How much money, if God were to say, you name a price, I'll give you that amount of money, and you'll know that at the end of your 120 years here, if you were to live that long, you will die and go to hell and spend eternity in hell. So knowing that, that's the parameters. How much money will you take for your soul? That's not even a question in my mind. I don't even start down the road. The first one is actually, to me, the much more thought-provoking question. We think in terms of money, but the, look back at the first part of the verse. What will, a, will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? See, guys, when you gain the whole world, you don't need money. The second one makes us think, I'd take this much money. Well, you're an idiot if you put any amount of money to it, right? You're an idiot if you answer that question with an amount of money. Okay, wait, wait, wait. What if you gain the whole world? Now, since it's hypothetical, I'm going to take it to extreme. This person is not what he's offering. Let's say it's not just the wealthiest person on the planet. They own the planet. You don't need money to buy anything you own. I mean, literally, they decide, I like that house by that seaside right there. Call them up and tell them I'll be there Tuesday. Get their stuff out. I'm coming. And tell their neighbor on the other side of the island, I'm going to be there Thursday to be sure they're out. Get it going. You own all the jets, all the planes that makes it happen, all the boats to make it happen. I own that. You own everything under the planet, on the planet, and flying around above the planet. I mean, you own it all. But don't stop there. Let's, since we're playing the game, let's really make this life good. What if the person is not only the owner of the planet, what if they are, pretend, like clearly, the prettiest person on the planet, the handsomest, the best looking, but more. You're like, wait, they own it and they're good looking? Okay, hang on. They're the wisest. Like you put all the most intelligent people in a room, the hundred most intelligent people, they all know, oh, that's, that's the most intelligent. Same person, you. You're the owner, you're the wisest, you're the most intelligent you're the most handsome, the prettiest, and by the way, you're the funniest. You're the most charming. Over here's a group of people, they get together and have these Olympics, and they want to find out who's the strongest, but you're the strongest. And over here, they're running to see, the, you're the fastest. Here they have these games and leagues, and they give out trophies. You're the most skilled in that one, and in that one, and in the, you name the sport, you're the most skilled in that. Oh, by the way, you are the best actor. You're the best singer. You're the best writer. You're the best artist. You're the most powerful speaker. But you will die after 120 years of the best life that's ever. No one's ever lived that life on earth. And you'll die and go to hell. What did you profit? Flip over to chapter 18. Look at chapter 18. Look at chapter 18, verse 8. These are clues, guys. Jesus is trying to tell us. You want to know how valuable? You want to know the difference? Look at verse 8. Chapter 18, 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. 
Guys, theologically, I don't know that that's literal, but if need be, let it be literal. Don't sue me because you heard this and did what that guy at Graceview said. I'm telling you what the text, I'm reading the text. Jesus says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better, this is a clue. He's been there, he's been here. He's telling us we've only been here. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Here's what the Lord says. It is better for you to enter life, like real life, eternal life, with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Guys, do y'all know who this is talking to? This is talking to the person who, when they come and they hear what the gospel is and they learn that eternal life and salvation is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ and putting their faith in him, they come to that point of decision. But here's how they think. And I don't even know what the specific, there's this sin in my life that I do with my hand. I don't know if they use their hand to put something in their mouth or if they use their hand to shoot something into their body or if they use their hands to do something vile or cruel or perverse. I don't know what it is, but whatever it is, they know, I know what Christianity calls for, but I like doing this with my hand or at my feet. My feet like to take me to a certain place. There's just a certain place. My flesh likes to go there. And I know it's perverse. And, and I'm kind of thinking Jesus isn't going to be real happy if I keep living that way, doing these things. And so I know I'd have to give that up, and I just don't want to do it. Or there's these perverse things. I just love looking at them. I just love it. And I just don't know that I want to give that up. So you're doing inventory on your life, and you're thinking, I don't know that it's worth it. You know what Jesus says? Pluck your eye out. Cut your hand off. Cut your foot off cast them away from you this is so much more about do not let any sin any temptation to sin if you're taking notes write this thought this is a clue this is a hint this is important jesus is hinting to us anything ladies and gentlemen please hear this anything that we perceive as catastrophic in this life is okay if it ultimately leads us to faith in Christ. That's what Christ is trying to teach us. I'm giving you a clue. The Lord said, you want a clue? You want to know how valuable it is? Anything you call catastrophic. Did you hear they got their hand cut off? Did you hear their eye got knocked out? Did you know they can't see? You know they can't walk anymore? You know they have no hands anymore? Anything, guys, we call catastrophic. If it ultimately leads you to faith in Christ, it's the best thing. And I know what I'm about to say is going to go against our normal way of thinking. This is foreign. I've never had cancer. Nobody in my immediate family, to my knowledge, has had cancer. Some of you have. Some of you have lost loved ones. Don't get mad at me. What the Lord is saying, a lesson is, if someone gets cancer and they will die, Four months later. And they do die four months later. But if they get cancer and it shakes them up and they come face to face with their mortality to such a degree that they go look and they talk with someone and that person tells them about Jesus Christ and they end up putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and then they die just a few weeks after that. They don't get to live the Christian line very long. Then I'm telling you cancer was like one of the best things that ever happened to that person. 
That sounds foreign. I'll go further. I'll promise you there are people that have gone to heaven, and one of the first things they've done is tell the Lord, literally, thank you for letting me get cancer. And you're like, you're an idiot. No, I'm not. Some people get such a glimpse, they thank God in this life as they're dying with cancer. Lord, thank you for this. I never would have felt my mortality. I never would have been frightened. I never would have listened to what you had to say if that hadn't happened. They get a picture of the value of the kingdom. With some, it's divorce. With some, it's something that caused them to go to prison. And it's not saying, Lord, thank you for letting me commit sin. It's, Lord, there is where I found you. And you met me. A major injury. Lose your job. Anything we think, that's the worst thing ever. No. If it leads to Christ, it's the best thing. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. Before we hit the second thought this morning, Piper offers the following. And this isn't really going to help. I'm going to go ahead and warn you. Because we don't understand these terms. We don't get these terms. But let me just try. So how valuable is the kingdom? Piper says, try to imagine anything more valuable than for the, here's the terms, anything more valuable. Try to imagine anything more valuable than for the almighty omnipotent, double talk, but you get it. Try to imagine anything more valuable than for the almighty, omnipotent, all-wise, all-loving creator to move in on you and say, picture him saying, I now exercise all of my wisdom, infinite, all of my wisdom and all of my omnipotence on your behalf to bring as much good into your eternity as is possible for an omnipotent being to bring. And you're like, what? Well, where's Piper get off saying something like that? He don't have the right to say that. That's what he turned. Made me think of kind of my new favorite verse. Ephesians 2, 7. Let me read verse 6. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable. That's a big word. The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I think Piper's on to something. Try one more time and we're hitting the second point. Try to imagine anything more valuable than for the almighty, omnipotent, all-wise, all-loving creator to move in on you and say, I now exercise all of my wisdom and all of my omnipotence on your behalf to bring as much good into your eternity as is possible for an omnipotent being to bring. Yeah, that sounds like it's going to be pretty good. <laughs> sounds like something valuable. You think? Do you think? Number two. Same point this morning restated. Same point restated. Number two. Not only is the value of his kingdom infinite, God's kingdom is worth any earthly sacrifice. And I've been saying that same point already. I've, I told you already it's the same. It's worth any earthly sacrifice. Let's go back to the parable, verse 44. Kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. I've thought through this. I literally did, sorry. I, I had a little time this week to do this. It was my job to do this. Do you know that between us and the clock restaurant right over there, there's that big curve in Centerville Road, not Charlie Drive, not that way down Centerville. Right outside here, there's this big curve. There's like this little wasteland field that's between us. Looks to be maybe a couple of acres right between us and the clock. Guys, if, if I were, for whatever reason, walking through that, it's got trees growing up like now, like 15, 16-foot trees. 
they used to not be there. If I were walking through that field and I tripped over something and I turn around and look and there's a piece of rebar bent over and I'm like, what in the world? Who put that there? And I get mad and I turn around and I come dig around that rebar and it keeps on going down and there's a big concrete and I find out it's a lid, three or four inches thick, and I lift that lid off and beneath that was like a four by four by four concrete box filled with the most expensive jewels in the world. I saw yesterday some blue diamond, rare, like 14 carats, sold back in 2015 for like $30.1 million. I'm thinking 30.1, really, are you, do you care about the point one? Do I hear 30, 30 million and 200,000? 30 million, 200,000, going once, 30 million, 200,000, up, up, sold, 30 million, 100,000. Come on, give them a break. Let's just call it 30 million. All right, thanks. I'll save the 100,000. Another one sold for like $57 million. I think it was 20-some carats. And that's just a few. They were literally millions and millions and millions. If I saw this in that field, I'm going to tell you straight up what I'm going to do. I'm covering it back up. I'm giddy. I'm happy. I'm covering it up. I'm making sure that little rebar is not seen. I'm putting weeds over it, packing it around, and I'm finding out who owns that field. And you say, Jeff, you see, oh, I'm going to buy that field. Well, it's not really for sale. Sir. No, no, everything's for sale. I need to know the price. You say, Jeff, what if the thing's like $250,000 for just a couple of acres? Right. You say, I'm buying it. You say, okay, well, what if they really don't want to sell? What if it's like half a million dollars? I'm buying it. I'm telling you, we'll sell. We won't get much, but we're selling the cars. We're selling a little property over here. Got the house over here. I'm hitting some of you up. You will not know why. I'm hitting you up for loans, and I'm promising you I'm going to give you 50-fold back. I'll give it to you back in a couple of months. And well, he seems kind of on it. What's he up to? He's acting strange. Oh, yeah, I would do it. I'd do it in RB. Because what I'm paying is nothing. If you were offered, you say, I don't really not, like New York City. Okay, doesn't matter. If you were offered any hundred acres on Manhattan Island, you get to pick. You want to break it up into a hundred plots or you want one big run. But it's going to cost you everything that you currently own. For 100 acres out of the 14,000 acres on Manhattan Island, are you taking that deal? You're going to own it, all the buildings on it, all the businesses in it, all the revenue, all that it's worth. You'll own that, but now it's going to cost you everything you currently own. You're like, that, I don't have to think about that. I'm doing it. Yes, I will do it. That's the point. The kingdom of heaven is much more valuable than 100 acres on Manhattan. And you do it with joy. So for the next few minutes, let's turn and get theological. Because here's where I started struggling. And what I'm about to say, I told Brandon the other day, Brandon, literally, the first part of this message, I could go down there and I could teach it to third graders, fourth graders. And he said, oh, good, I might want to borrow it. I said, seriously, this thing, nothing I've said today. Y'all, everything I've said so far, you think, I, th I do think fourth graders. And I want to keep that theme going. So here's the question. Look at verse 44. And 46, 45, 46. Let's read it one more time, and I'm going to start asking some questions about the text. Verse 44. Jesus, the one who's been here and there, says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has. Do you see it? He finds the treasure, and he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Jesus says, that's how the kingdom of heaven is. Okay. 
45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Sold it all, bought it. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. So I've got to ask you guys. I'm trying to interpret this. I want to be true to the text, so I'm going to ask you the following question. Do these parables imply that to go to heaven, we must sell all of our earthly goods and give them to God as a condition of salvation? You gave the right answer, and the right answer is in your head. That's because you know what the rest of the New Testament teaches. But I'm looking at this going, now wait a minute. Here's the kingdom. It's like this. And this man sells all that he has. This merchant sells all that he has. And I've got to stand and preach to you guys. And I'm like, Lord, like you just said, I know that's not the answer. So what is the answer? (laughs) I know that's not the answer. You say, whoa, 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 whoa. How do you know that it doesn't mean we're supposed to sell everything we have and give it to God? As a condition for salvation. One other passage. Flip back to chapter 5. Go back to chapter 5. You're in Matthew still. Look at chapter 5 verse 3. Have these things called called the Beatitudes. Did you notice? Remember the very first Beatitude Jesus gave. He says blessed. The idea of blessed there is like really fortunate. The person that is to be envied. The person who actually has the good life. Who are the blessed? Watch. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs. Listen, Jesus is not saying blessed are those who became poor because they went and sold it. They saw the value of the kingdom, went and sold all that they had, and now they're really poor. No. Blessed are the poor. And by the way, the word poor here does not mean they're down to their last $5. This particular word poor, and they had different ones, it means bankrupt. They have nothing. They have nothing. The person who gets the kingdom of God is the one who realizes as they look at themselves, I have nothing to offer God. No amount of money, no amount of good works. I can never bargain with God. I can't buy. Jesus says, that's the kind of person who gets the kingdom. So I know that when I'm over here now in chapter 13 and they're selling all that they have to buy the field, selling all they have to buy the pearl, which stands for the kingdom, I know that that doesn't mean sell all their goods. Can I just say a couple of things quickly? Nowhere does the Bible tell us to buy our way into God's kingdom. Nowhere does the Bible tell us to earn our way into God's kingdom by paying money or by doing good deeds. Somebody help me out. The second thing Jesus told the rich young ruler, what was his second command to him? His first one was keep the commandments. Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Y'all with me? Listen, Jesus' command to the rich young ruler was not given for everyone. Jesus' command to the rich young ruler was not given to everyone. I don't have time to preach on that, but I'll promise you his, his command was to make a point with this particular man. Yes, he went and told him, Jesus says, you go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the man would not do it because he was wealthy. That is not Jesus' command for everyone in here today. And we get out of line when we start looking at texts like I'm dealing with today with these two parables. And we start pulling that in and apply it that direction. I've got to keep going quickly. Now hang with me. Theologically, now as I'm back in verse number, chapter 13, verses 44, 45, 46. So I've got to ask you, all right, if this is not teaching that we're supposed to go sell everything. 
Another question. Answer this in your head. Then what is the price of admission into God's kingdom? What is the price of admission into heaven? What is the price of admission to have your sins forgiven? What is the price? Well, that's just it. It's free. It is, did y'all know that already, right? I'm not telling you anything you didn't know. So wait a minute. Okay, it doesn't mean that. So then what is the price? There is no price of admission to get into. For us, is that on the screen? Let's go ahead and have that next note. I had to add the, to us in the middle because it wasn't on your handout, and I felt really guilty. I'm like, okay, I don't want anybody to be confused. Notice, the price of admission to Christ's kingdom is completely free to us. Why? Christ Jesus paid all the cost for us to go to heaven. You say, Jeff, where in the world is that? Guys, literally, I, I preach this every week. We receive the free gift of God. We are saved by grace through faith. And it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any one of us should try to boast about it. 1 John chapter 1, verse number 7, second part of the verse says, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Christ is the payment. He paid the full cost. All we do is receive. John chapter 1, verse number 12. As many people as received Christ, to received, to them gave you the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on Christ. They receive, they believe. So the, here's the answer. There is no price of admission on our end. So here's my next question. And I invite you, don't answer this out loud. Don't answer this one out loud. Doesn't mean we're supposed to go sell everything to earn our way up. No. What does it cost to get in? It's free. So I'm thinking about this week, and I want to ask you the question that I was asking myself. You ready? So is the point of these two parables, is it only this, that Christ's kingdom is so valuable that if it had an enormous cost, if it had a high price to enter, it would be worth the enormous cost and high price. But good news, it's free. Is that the lesson? And I give that to you this morning. We take that note, we pray, and we go home. Is that the lesson? Hey, this thing is so valuable that if it were to cost you everything, it would be worth everything. But good news, it's free. Is that the message? Next question. Would, be, would we be wrong to put anything more into those latter parts of those verses where this first man and the second man went and sold everything that they have to get the pearl and to get the field? Are we wrong to read anything more than this? Is, it wrong? Is this only the point? Hey, again, are you with me? If it did cost, it's worth it. But it doesn't. But if it did, it's worth it. But it doesn't. But if it did, it is so great, it would be worth it. But it doesn't. And just over and over, is that, is that the point? And so this morning and this week, I'm, I'm on a tightrope. Here's the tightrope. You say, Jeff, what do you mean by tightrope? It's easy to get out of balance right here. This is tricky. I'm going to give an account to God for how I teach this. If all I do is stand up and say, and I don't know why he put it in there once, but he did it twice. They went and sold all that they have. I guess it's just to show how valuable it is if it did cost. And pray and go home and we're done. No, I've, I've got to give an account for how I teach this. 
So I want to offer the following. Here's the tightrope. I must not give any impression whatsoever on anyone this morning that we are saved from sin by how we perform or by what we give up. That's not the lesson. They went and sold all they had. I guess we're supposed to. Don't please no one walk out of here. No one ever think. That guy down at Graceview is teaching and preaching. The way to get saved is sell and give or let that be the spiritual equivalent of give up all these things in your life and start being really good and that's how you earn a way to heaven. Nope, I cannot. If I give you that impression, I have failed. But I also must not diminish what Jesus is teaching us about his lordship over true Christians that always, always, always accompanies salvation. Write that down. That's important. I can tell already I'm more passionate about this than a lot of you, and I realize it's 12 o'clock. You need to get what I'm about to say. Say It's important. We're not done with the text by saying it's super valuable, and it would be worth theoretically if it did cost. We're not done with the text. So, Jeff, what do you mean? What's this tightrope? Look at that again. We, I'm just going to read it one more time. We must not leave any impression that we are saved by sin, by how we perform or what we give up. But we must also not diminish what Jesus is teaching about his lordship over true Christians that, I emphasize the word, always accompanies salvation. Could I say it this way? This lordship and this surrendering, it's not how we are saved, but it always goes with it. It always goes with it. So what did it look like in here? Have y'all read the book? Have you over here, have you read this? Have you read this? You say, Jeff, what does it look like? In the Gospels, here's what it looked like. Over and over, Jesus met would-be followers with a call to make major sacrifices. At the outset, over and over and over, I literally, I could triple this list. I'm going to give you a quick sample. The Lord, Jesus, on the earth, tells people, you going to be my follower? Take up your cross daily and then follow me. What does that mean? Take up your death instrument. Don't physically go kill yourself. Literally, you want to be a follower of Christ. Here's what he's saying. You must die, die to your will. You must die to your will and take up my will. Take up your cross. You're going to be my follower? If you don't do that, you're not worthy of me. Ouch. I'll get it to you. It was uncomfortable. Deanna's up here talking a little bit earlier. Like Some of y'all are like, I don't think I like that lady talking like that to me. She's nothing. You should have heard what Jesus was telling people. You should listen. Here's, here's another one. Leave your houses. Leave your lands. Come follow me. Oh, Lord, I'll go wherever you want. I'm going wherever you go. I'm all in. Are you really? Hold on. Whoa, whoa. Here's what it sounds like. Are you with me? Here's what you need to know. Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. You're going to follow me? You're one of my followers? You're going to be a disciple? You're getting in on the kingdom? Come be homeless. Let's go. Be homeless? We don't get a record that the man went. Another man says, I'll go. Apparently, he was willing to be homeless. One problem. He must have heard that his dad had died, and so he comes to the Lord kind of negotiating. I just need to go do my dad's funeral. What did Jesus tell him? No, 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 no. Whoa. You let the spiritually dead, your other family who don't know me or not my father, you let them bury your physically dead father. You come follow me. Don't come negotiating with me. 
That's what the lordship of the, Jesus looks like. Listen, this ain't how we get saved. It's always there. It's at the outset. It's at the beginning. He puts it before them. A lot of people didn't want it. Here's one. Oh. I didn't say this. Jesus did. Who, this, is, this is broad. This is everybody. Whoever loves father, mother, sister, brother, son, daughter more than me is unworthy of me. Can I translate that? If you love your father and your mother, if you love your kids more than Christ, here's what he says, then don't bother. Don't bother. What? Now, right now, some of you checked out at 12 o'clock, and now you're kind of at, tuned in like, wait a minute, what's, whoa, 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 whoa. And some of you may be thinking, Jeff, come on, dude. Soften this a little bit. I brought a visitor. <laughs> Hang in there. He's going to give us the theological loophole in just a minute. Give it the loophole. I can't soften these words. Take up your cross. Be willing to be homeless. Let the dead bury their dead. Oh, no, i got to go to my dad's funeral. No, you come follow me. You don't negotiate with me. You love them more than me? Get it, and Then get out of here. Go to them. You're not one of mine. And I know right now some of you are like, this is uncomfortable. Jeff, again, give us a theological loophole. This is 21st century. This is America. This isn't that. And we like the good life, but we want to go to heaven too. So can you work something out, Jeff? I can't soften this. If there is a loophole, and it's not, if there is a loophole, here's the difference between that and here. Y'all ready? Here's the difference, the only one I could think of. In 2020, there's no physical Jesus walking around on the planet. He could. I don't anticipate it theologically. I don't think he would. The physical son of God is not going to walk through that door a minute and say, Jeff, wrap it up in just a minute, and when you do, don't go home. Follow me. What, Lord? I want you to leave grace for you and come. If that were to happen, then I'm at, I'm at a point of decision. There's no physical Jesus who's going to walk into this room and say, hey, you, leave the union job. You, leave the plant job. You kidding? You know how many years I got that? Leave the plant job. Hey, you, leave your teaching job. Leave your medical job. You, leave the job that you've built with your own hands or your blood and sweat and tears. Poured all your resources. You finally got it where you want it to be. You got a little bit of a reputation, a little bit of brand. It's ready to start taking off. You bought all the tools and you got the shop and, and you've got your cards out there and it's finally, leave that. Come follow me. We don't have a physical Jesus telling us that. You say, well, Jeff, what do we have? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Here's what we have. Do you remember John 14, John chapter 16, at the end of Mark, Acts chapter number 1. Jesus, the physical Jesus on earth, right before he left, made a promise. He says, I'm leaving, and he does that in Acts 1. And he says, I'm going to send, here's key, my spirit. It's him. I'm going to send my spirit to my followers. You know what he did in Acts chapter 2? He leaves in chapter 1. Ten days later, he, he sends his spirit to his followers. So instead of one physical Jesus in the land of Israel with all the saved people following him around physically, we're now scattered around the world, but his spirit is living among us. You say, that's great, Jeff. What does that have to do with his lordship over us? Well, first of all, it means that what he told the rich young ruler is not automatically what he tells us. What he tells Peter and Andrew, and then later James and John, leave your nets, doesn't automatically apply to us. And right now some are going, good, because it was sounding rough there for a second. 
But wait, Jeff. Got it. It doesn't mean we automatically assume what he told them in person applies to us. What does it mean? Write this down. We've got to hurry. Jesus' lordship. I told you we're not done with the text. Oh, it's valuable. It's worth anything, but good news, it's free. No, there's something else here. Jesus' lordship over church-age Christians means that when he does, remember, he's not here physically, it means in our time, when he does make his specific will for us known through the New Testament. They didn't have the New Testament. When he does make his will known specifically for us through the New Testament and through the inner prompting of his Holy Spirit that indwells all true Christians. They didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. They didn't have a New Testament. They had a physical Lord Jesus. He gave very strict, sacrificial, major sacrificing commands at the outset of following him. A lot of people turned away. Huh. What this means for us is that when he does give his commands through the New Testament, through the indwelling Holy Spirit that he fully intends, he fully expects that you and I will obey him just like he fully intended and expected those people to follow him. And if you don't, then it's a sign that you're not one of his. So that's how we get saved. No, 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 no. That's not how we get saved. But it's always there at the outset of being saved. I got a note I want you to write. And by the way, quick question. Okay, Jeff, I do see the difference. Spirit, in our day, completed the Bible. They didn't have that. They had Jesus in person. Do we assume that the Spirit will ask less of us than he did them? Well, certainly, Jeff, this is America. We're, we're Americans. We've got a lot of luxury these days. I think we do. I think we assume, boy, they had it rough. Can't believe that guy didn't follow Jesus. Would you have followed him? Come be homeless. Yeah, that guy should have followed him. I bet he regrets it now. You know what we do? I don't think he's ever going to call anything like that for us. Very important. Write this down. So this was a thought that the Lord gave me, and lo and behold, I found a, a, a quote from MacArthur that bore it out, that matched it. In full disclosure, not to take anything away, but my thought did precede and his thought validated this. Here's the thought. Let's go ahead and get it on the screen. Watch this. Genuine surrender. That's what we're talking about, Lordship of Christ. Genuine surrender is not the price of admission to Christ's kingdom. It's not how you get in. But it is assumed at the moment of salvation and point of our text, it is joyfully accepted because of the value of living with God. It's not how you get saved. It's not the price of admission into his kingdom, but it is surely assumed at the moment. And I don't know that a lot of us realize, you know, when you got saved, you didn't just take Jesus as your savior. You take him as your Lord. And even though you realize that, you're joyfully going to accept that. Why? Because the value of living with God. Are you kidding? If I could go to heaven for 60 seconds, if I could go to hell for 10 seconds, it doesn't matter. Anything here is worth giving up. It's all good. Now MacArthur words it better, and he writes it like this. Such surrender is not a human work to gain salvation, 
but a part of the, it's a part of the saving work of God wrought in the soul by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to, I know my time. I'm going to say this twice because I've got to get it. Again, such surrender is not a human work. Then we're working. Nope. It's not a human work to gain salvation, but a part of the saving work of God wrought in the soul by the Holy Spirit. Skipping ahead. So honest. This is me. He says, most people who consider receiving Christ as Savior and Lord do not consciously inventory all their material, social, and other possessions to see if he is worth sacrificing those things for. I was nine years old. I didn't do that. Now what? And, and you're here today. I, don't, I doubt anyone today when you got saved said, now wait a minute. Oh, I, are you going to get saved? I, I probably am. Give me just a second. I make this much a year. Pro-read it out. I work 20 more years. Hang on. I own that. Got the beach house. Got the condo. We got these cars. I got that in the 401k. I got that. This is my health. I got my family. Uh, add that all up. Is he worth? Nobody does that. Back to his quote. He says, when they discover the infinite value of salvation, they simply yield to Christ. Their focus is not on what they give up, but on what they receive. That's me. Like, yeah, do you want to get saved? Yes, I want it. But, oh, here it comes. So that's not how you get saved. It's not human work to get saved. He says, their focus is not on what they give up, but on what they receive. But, this is key, if their redemption is genuine, their lives will evidence a willingness to surrender whatever stands between them and faithfulness to their Lord. It's not how they get saved, but when they really do get saved and the Holy Spirit comes in, their life will evidence that they're willing to follow him faithfully. Faithfully, what does that mean? When they find out his word says something, not perfectly, when the Holy Spirit prompts these people do it. Others don't. These people, here's key. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit, Jesus' Spirit in us is equally as authoritative as Jesus himself personally telling those people, leave your houses, leave your lands, take up your cross, love me more than them. Equal authority. So I ask you this. I bet if I said raise your hands, don't, don't close your eyes, don't bow your head. Heads up, everybody looking ahead. Raise your hand if you know that you know that you're a Christian. I'm not saying do it right now, but y'all know most hands would go up in here. So I have to ask you. If you say that you've done this, you saw the value, you've trusted Christ, you didn't try to earn it, you'd give anything to take it because the most valuable things in this life is your health and your family and your friends and some finances and whatever material possessions you have and let's throw in your reputation. You're like, that's outside of my spiritual. That's the most important things I have. But if I had to give all of that up to get eternal life through Christ, I'm taking Christ and I've done that, Pastor. Great. Here's my question. What has being a member of God's kingdom cost you? Do we think it's a lot different now than them then? Well, Jesus has chilled out a lot over the last 2,000 years. He was really uptight back then in person. The Holy Spirit's a lot nicer than Jesus. And Jesus is nicer than the Father. In the Old Testament, he was, where am I getting off on that? Sorry. What's it cost you? If you're taking notes, this is sadly true. This is, this is somebody in this room probably. 
Some people call themselves Christians, but they can't point to any change in their life after supposedly being saved. Like literally, I just asked the question, I wish I had five minutes for you to start writing down ways. How has my life changed? I wish you could sit there, bullet point, here's one of the ways. Since you got saved, for me, 1979, how has my life changed? Guys, you want to know the sad truth? There are some people who lived a life of sin before they got saved, and they're still living a life of sin. I'm not talking about committing acts of sin. All Christians commit acts of sin. But Christians don't just live and wallow in sin on and on and on. There are some people who would say, oh, I'm a Christian, but they still live a life of sin. There are some Christians say, oh, they, they, they would say, I'm a Christian. I've, I've seen the treasure. I've trusted Christ. But their time use they don't use, uh, here's the one thing they could point to. I go to church sometimes. Golf clap. I go, to co- I go to church sometimes. That's what you've got? They don't use their time any different than before they were saved. They don't use their money any different than before they were saved. And so that makes me ask, has God's word called for no change? Has the Holy Spirit communicated that much differently? Momo's done. How do we compare these people? Still sin. The only thing they important to is they go to church. They don't go home and read their Bible. They don't have a time of prayer. They, they literally do not know how to talk to God. The only, thing, the only thing they have is I get dressed up on Sunday and I go to church sometimes. I kind of miss a lot, though, because of family. I'll miss family. Jesus says, get out of here. Don't bring that. Well, you know, Lord, they're more important. Do you have no change? And I compare that with millions upon millions who over the last 2,000 years, their life has changed. Their time is like totally, they like spend daily time with God, surrendering their will, letting God develop in them a relationship. They spend time in his word. They spend time very imperfectly. What about these people? How can we compare and reconcile? This group had no change. But over here, these people, they like have given their life to ministries that are difficult or unsung or hidden. Not like for a few months, year after year after year, and it's not easy. What about these people? Finances. What about these people? They, They haven't changed at all. But over here, these people, and they don't just give meagerly. And they don't just give generously. What about all the millions that give sacrificially? Well, that sounds like someone who's really understood not just the saviorhood of Christ, but the lordship of Christ. What about these people who knowingly, not their choice, but God says, I'm going to take your kids and they're going on a foreign field. They're your kids, God. What about the ones who go on the foreign field? What about the people, you say, Jeff, this doesn't really happen. What about those for the last 2,000 years who know when they get saved, they will at least lose their property, they will at least lose their job, and they very well may, and millions have lost their life. They've lost their life, but their attitude was, I'll lose it joyfully because I'm gaining everything. The value of the kingdom is worth any earthly sacrifice. I think that's the lesson. So last week... I said something that struck a nerve with a lot of people because I heard feedback, like eight or ten people. My opinion, I don't think this is going to be the only creation that God does. I think, as I said, I can't re-preach. I think, guys, we're only on the ground floor of something way bigger. Now, listen, do you all know what that means? I think we're on the ground floor of something way bigger than we anticipate. 
I, what if we get to the next life and God creates again? Can I give you my theory? Just a theory. I don't remember who corrupted my mind to think this way. It was probably that Charlie Rice before he died. I bet it was him. I can't say for sure. He taught me a lot. I wonder if he creates other creatures in eternity. I'll bet you they do not get called children of God like we 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 do. I bet they're not called the bride of Christ. In my mind, I picture future creations talking to each other and looking over at someone going, who is that over there? Every time they come here, there's a big to-do, and everybody's all excited, and they have this authority. You don't know who that is? That's so-and-so. And they say your name. Who's that? They're from the first creation. They're from when they didn't have all this. They're from when all they had, you remember the Bible? Yeah, I've heard of it. All they had were words. And they believed God. And they obeyed him. And they sacrificed when they didn't have this. When they'd never even seen God. Yeah, they're a big deal. We do what they say. That's Yahweh's son. That's Yahweh's daughter. That's Christ's bride. That's who that is. Oh, that's you. It's bigger than we think. So take your last note. I give this note at least probably once every eight months, I bet. It's for me. It's not for you. God loves souls, and God loves faith. So here's what I know. This life is our one chance to live by faith. This is our one chance to point people to Christ. We can never go back once we get there. Paul, after what he talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when he saw the third heaven, he could never live by faith again. He already saw something. You can't live. Once you see, you can't unsee. Right now, none of us have seen. We have words. We have promises. And this is your one shot. You don't get to go to the next life and like, can I go back and tell people about Christ? This is our one shot. This is your one shot. This is when it matters. So even if we have to sacrifice. Last week, I'm, I'm closing with this. Last week, I made a comment about Lottie Moon. What I made earlier, I didn't know the goal was $175 million. I didn't even know that 10% increase for us would probably be about 12000 Said something like that at staff meeting Monday afternoon, and Mike Sturgill said, he says, you know if everybody in the church would do the two things that you said, which were ask God, God, what would you have me give to the Lottie Moon International Mission Board offering? He says, if everybody would do that and then do the second thing, Obey what God impresses. He says, we'd have no problem reaching $12,000. We'd have no problem. And I said, that's absolutely true. Are you willing to live a life of sacrifice, not just generosity? Sacrifice. That would be a small thing. Are you willing to sacrifice your life? Heads bowed, eyes closed. I'm going to pray in just a moment. My invitation it's not a come forward. It's right there where you're at. I'm just going to pray. And I'm just going to ask quick Christians. This is directed to Christians today. If someone is lost, you never trusted Christ, and you're struggling with some sin, and you're holding on to that because your hand and your foot and your eye loves this sin, and you're afraid to give it up. And if you need to talk to us about how to be saved, you're ready to forsake that, then contact us, call us, come see us. We'll be glad. Talk to me after the service. Just Christians, right before I pray, can I ask you this simple questions? It, pretend, if you died today, if you died today, are you happy with how you've lived your life? 
Are you happy with how you've invested your resources? Answer that question. If I died today and I was in heaven and by the end of the day, I'll not see midnight tonight. If I were in heaven, am I happy with how I've invested my resources, how I've lived my life? If you say, no, I'm not, can I ask you the next question? What would you change? Like, be specific. What would you change? Say, so, man, I, could, I wish I could change a lot of my past. You can't. Sorry, that's gone. What would you change now and moving forward? Be specific. Because here's the challenge. You have right now. You have today. You don't have tomorrow. Tomorrow will never come. Tomorrow will never come. You have today. True Christians value their relationship with Jesus and God more than anything else. Listen to me. Their life shows it. That is a mark of a true Christian. They value the Lord and being faithful to Him. They don't do it perfectly. Be honest with yourself. Does your life show change? Does your life show that you would choose Him over everything else if it did cost that? But it's free. But when His Lord, when your Lord through the Holy Spirit speaks to you, does your life show when He points that out and puts it in my life, I'm willing to change. Christian, are you holding on to something? Are you holding on to anything that you're not giving up to the Lord that one second after you leave this life, you'll have regret that you didn't give to Him? If that's the case and the Lord's putting His finger on something, how you spend your time, where your affections are, your children, investment of your ministries, giving you spiritual gifts, even the resources of your money. Are you happy with what you've done? We don't pray, Lord, what would you have me give to the missionary offering after we've bought our Christmas presents? And then whatever's left over, I'll see what he wants of that. No, we ask him and then we adjust our other buying off of what he has already put his hand and finger on. I dare you to do it. And then do it with joy because that's what Christians do Father thank you for their patience Lord I pray that this week today more than I've ever seen it before that you would show me the great value of a relationship with you and the great value of having Christ Lord I pray that for me and these people as I close in prayer God I pray that what some of us heard Danny Goki sing this week is give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You, them, they can have all this world. Lord, I value and treasure Christ above them. Lord, show us the infinite value of your kingdom that is worth any earthly sacrifice. And Lord, let us be in your word to learn what your Lordship sounds like for us. And Lord, let us be responsive to your Holy Spirit as he prompts us individually for our walk with you, your Lordship over us individually. Let us be found faithful and joyful in it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for your patience. Have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday afternoon.